You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loistrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff, and uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad, uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks, so they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes, uh, and these things are high quality, and they look fantastic. Now, here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris eight at S A M O R R I S numeral eight at Sam Morris eight on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote. Uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. My guest on uncommentary today is Dominique Dubois. And as you'll learn, uh, I mispronounced that in the show. Gilliard. He is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church. He's the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores, an excellent book. One 2018 Book of the Year for InterVarsity Press named Outreach Magazine's 2019 Social Issues Resource of the Year. His latest book, and one we'll be talking about today, is Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege. He's adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary in the School of Restorative Arts. Uh, this is a really good conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. We're talking about privilege, what it means and what it, what it doesn't mean. And uh, I think it's a conversation that will help some get around the blockade that they hear when they think that privilege means somebody has everything. So I hear a lot of people objecting to that term uh, by saying things like, I've worked for everything that I have. Don't tell me that I'm privileged or uh, I've had to work for everything I own. My parents had to work, you know, from sunup to sundown. Don't tell me my parents were privileged, those kinds of things. So uh, a really good conversation uh, from Scripture, which is hugely important to me as we're fleshing this out, uh, totally derives his thoughts from, uh, from the biblical text. And it's a really, really good conversation. I hope you'll not only listen, but I hope you'll also share this episode with folks because this is a really, really good conversation starter. This is Dominique Gilliard. Dominique Gilliard, welcome to Uncommentary. Hey, brother. I'm so excited to be back with you and your community. Uh, you know, you're only the third person in 80-something episodes that's been on more than once. Did you know that? I did not know that, but I am privileged to learn that. Uh, privileged. Oh, that's a good word to use. Uh, yeah, Thabiti, Thabiti Anubile was one. In fact, he might have been the first one. And then uh, Bruce Ashford, who's a writer and public theologian, he was the other. So uh, I am really super glad to have Dominique Gilliard back. Um, talk to you uh, early on in the history of uncommentary about incarceration, rethinking incarceration. And um, you, being a busy author that you are, have now churned out another book subversive witness. I like the name of that. Um, it's, uh, it's a book about privilege. And so that's a conversation that I want to have. It's a conversation I think will do us a lot of good, but before we jump into that, why don't you let the uninitiated among us know something about you? 
Yeah, so uh, my nine to five, which is an illusion in ministry, um, (laughs) (laughs) is that I serve as the director of racial righteousness and reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church, which means that I am a pastor to pastors throughout our denomination, helping them make connections between discipleship, biblical justice, and scriptures commission to be agents of reconciliation in the world. Um, And so this looks like everything from me uh, writing curricula for our denomination to working one-on-one with pastors or leadership teams to traveling out to be on the grounds with congregations to explore how they can either start or enhance uh, ministries that are allowing them to faithfully love their neighbors. And so uh, that's what I do. I do a bunch of stuff around that. Um, I'm on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association, which is an organization that's focused on reinvesting in disenfranchised communities based off biblical principles. Um, I am also an adjunct professor uh, at North Park Theological Seminary, where I get the opportunity to serve as an adjunct professor inside of a really exciting program called the Trans- uh, the School of Restorative Arts, mm. where we offer a master's program inside of a maximum security prison. Oh, wow. And we allow uh, seminary students to come inside of the prison and to join, join cohorts with their incarcerated brothers and sisters, wow. where they will learn together over the course of four years. And the program is focused on creating um, everyday peacemakers in conflict-ridden spaces. And we're literally making disciples who are actively making disciples inside prisons and on the outside, uh, having a more holistic understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's a beautiful program that I get to be involved in. That's fantastic. And so I do that kind of work. <laughs> so if, if you're listening and you need Dominic to do anything, give him a call because he's clearly not doing anything at all in his life. Uh, man, that's, <laughs> that's, right. that's fantastic. Um, so your book is called Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege. So um, the one thing that I like about what you're doing here is you don't neglect to define your term. Um, and so privilege. So let me, let me just set the, uh, the conversation this way. So I'm a almost 59 year old white dude. Um, so I'm now in the, the demographic that is like the, the one that has been the problem all along, you know, I'm the old white guy. Um, and I remember several years ago when I first heard the term white privilege, I had no idea what any of that was about. I was completely separated from any kind of racial uh, conversations at that time. And then when I did hear about it, I thought, well, I don't, I'm not sure that that's extremely helpful for a guy like me who feels insulted the first time he hears it. And mm-hmm. the, t- the, the amount of times that I've heard people arguing about just the phrase itself, white privilege. Now, now I understand what it means and I understand that I have it to a, to a great degree, uh, that my interactions with police officers are going to be extremely different than a lot of people's interactions with police officers, for instance. Um, but as I was thinking about through, as I learned what it was, eventually, I still feel like I kind of felt like, ah, oh, there just must be a better way to express this. It seems so off-putting for people who don't understand it, but who might otherwise accept it if they just knew what it meant. And I noticed coming into your book, that you just use the term privilege. 
uh, no modifier, no class modifier, no race modifier. Now, maybe further in somewhere you deal with it, but, but generally speaking. So talk a little bit about what you mean when you're using the term privilege and why you chose to use it as a standalone. Well, first, let me talk about what I don't mean. Okay. Um, so acknowledging privilege is not about condemnation or shaming or guilting one another into coerced actions. Uh, I really believe Christians are called to acknowledge privilege because it's real and because doing so liberates us from its power mm. um, and allows us to confront and address privilege in ways that free us to live into our created purpose fully and freely. Mm. So that's the baseline of what I'm not talking about and why I think we need to have this conversation. Uh, I believe scripture repeatedly acknowledges privilege and provide, provides insight into how privilege insidiously functions today. Uh, and learning to unmask privilege can be really painful work. Mm-hmm. So I want st- to stop and name that. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that the cure for the pain is in the pain. Mm-hmm. I believe by candidly addressing privilege, we create a unique opportunity for the body of Christ to turn away from sin and reorient ourselves towards God and neighbor. Um, And so when I talk about that, though, I want to go ahead and lead into the next part. Having privilege is not a sin, though privilege emerges from many of the sins of our foreparents. Yes, please do Um, elaborate. (laughs) what is sinful is exploiting privilege for our own advantage and turning a blind eye to the suffering of our neighbors Mm. in order to sustain it. So that's, that's the real caveat here. Um, I really do believe that when we're talking about privilege, there's two different ways that I try to talk about it in the book. I talk about privilege connected to embodiment, um, how our bodies are constructed, race, gender, health, and more other other things, um, and how this form of privilege is not a privilege that comes from God, Mm. but this is a privilege that's rooted in sin. And this form of privilege slowly but surely negates the biblical, fundamental biblical truth that we are all equitably made in the image of God. Um, And so it really talks about the social currency that has been ascribed to things like race and gender and mental cognition and able-bodiedness in our our world Mm -hmm. and how because of sin and the fallenness of what is a byproduct of sin, those, those logics have informed and distorted systems and structures in ways that uh, the image of God is more validated, protected, and respected in some than it is in others. So let me jump, in, let me is, jump in right here and ask you, is a valid um, synonym for how you're using privilege that some people have certain advantages Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a word that not, not that I'm now, I don't now have a problem with privilege, but the word advantage helped me understand what that conversation was about, that I have certain advantages that I didn't earn that are simply because of how I look, how I speak, um, that I'm a dude instead of a woman, um, that all of these things give me a leg up in some way, shape or form, or can give me a leg up in one sh- way in some way, shape or form in culture, just as I'm living my life, that a person who's not white, not male, uh, and maybe not even uh, heterosexual doesn't get by virtue of them not being those things. Is that an, is that a valid kind of explanation? 
Correct. Okay. That is spot on. Um, and so the way I like to talk about it is that it creates this sliding scale of humanity where, again, some lives are respected, protected and valued over and against mm-hmm. others. Um, so racism, you know, patriarchy, classism, um, what we were just talking about um, in regards to things like homophobia, all these different things that come um they are privileges, but they are privileges that produce isms mm-hmm. in our world and our society, and they are not of God. Um, and we need to be very clear about that. And I believe that when we are, then we can understand that they are not power dynamics that God condones, and they are not patterns to which Christians should conform. Uh, scripture is very clear in uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are not to conform to the patterns of this world. And uh, those things are patterns of this world. And so we are called to be diametrically opposed to those things, and we bear witness to who and whose we are through how we choose to allow the Spirit to renew our minds and allow us to be... Um, you know, divorced from those kind of ways of thinking and engaging the world. So that's one form of privilege that I talk about. And just to give people, in case they're struggling, I want to give like some historic Mm -hmm. examples to root this. So in our constitution, uh, it refers to our indigenous sisters and brothers as merciless Indian savages. Um, That is not an affirmation of the image of God. Um, (laughs) That's not even a sideways compliment, dude. (laughs) When we talk about, you know, black people in this country legally being constituted as property, um, it's not an affirmation of the image of God. When we talk about uh, Chinese Americans being legally excluded from immigrating into this country just because of their ethnic identity for up to 60 years. Um, we talk about Japanese Americans being rounded up and forced into incarceration camps, again, just because of their ethnic identity. These are None of these things are affirmations of the image of God um, in these people and these people groups and therefore it's something that diametrically opposes uh the biblical truth we see in the first pages of scripture Mm. um so that's one one way i talk about privilege but then i also talk about positional privilege um and positional privilege um oftentimes is connected to the first form of privilege that I talked about, the embodied privilege that comes from systems and structures that do, you know, uplift people and abide by these isms that mm-hmm. that are real in our fallen world. But there's also uh, a biblical r- reality where we see God intentionally and strategically using positional privilege to advance the kingdom and to allow people to bear witness to who and whose they are through how they choose to leverage their privilege to sacrificially love their neighbors. Mm. And in that way, I think the way that I talk about privilege is really distinctive in that it's not just something about, you know, looking at the bad, but there's also generative and liberating and gospel potential when privilege is properly understood mm. when we when we can properly acknowledge that a lot of the privilege that exists in our world is rooted in sin and we can actually name that and intentionally live in a way where we're turning away from sin and turning back to God even if it's sin that we didn't we didn't enact but it's sin that we just are 
beneficiaries of mm-hmm. um, because of things that our ancestors have done. Once we come into a revelation of that, we have a responsibility, Scripture says, to be repairs of the breach. Um, and in that phrase, it's acknowledging that these breaches exist. Mm-hmm. And as we come into a revelation of their existence, we're called to be people who are working to mend them, to fix them, to reconcile them. Um, and and that takes intentionality. And a lot of how that can happen is when people understand that their positional privilege has a missional purpose. Mm. And I believe that, you know, this piece is really important because I'm not really you know, that interested in arguing with people that privilege exists. Like, I mean, there's, there's documented evidence of that (laughs) everywhere, but the real question I believe for believers is what do we do Mm -hmm. with it when we realize that we have it? And when we realize that our privilege has a missional purpose and that's to expand the kingdom and to sacrificially love our neighbors, then we get a chance to actually function as co-laborers with Christ and reconciling the world to God. One of the things that, um, really kind of opened my understanding was uh, to whom much is given, much is required. Yep. And we tend to isolate that as something having to do with just our salary. (laughs) If we're rich, then a lot should be required of us. (laughs) Tax that guy. He's got a lot of money, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if I've been given advantages that I, even if I earn some of them, if I earn none of them, if I have advantages then God has given those advantages to me, whether it's my ability to speak English or whatever it might be. Um, and there's a lot required of me in God's eyes because of the advantages that he's given me in my culture. So standing up for speaking for those who can't speak for themselves, standing in the gap for those who are under assault, those kinds of things to me are part and parcel of what it means to be Christian and be obedient to that scripture, be faithful in stewarding the uh, the responsibilities and the opportunities and the privileges that God has given to me. Does that sound right? Yeah. And there's a couple of other kind of phrases that are really common within the life of the church. Like we're blessed to be a blessing. Mm-hmm. That's just not metaphor. Right. Like that's, <laughs> that's a literal thing that we're supposed to live out. And then another one, you know, for me is, you know, the blessings that we receive are meant to flow through us mm-hmm. and not just to mm-hmm. us. And this is a real challenging thing because part of what we're up against is the fact that we live in a world, again, the patterns of this world that teach us to define success and flourishing and prosperity in a certain way. And that certain way is rooted in rugged individualism. Mm -hmm. It's rooted in a bootstrap bootstrap mythology. Mm -hmm. It's rooted in all of these things. And honestly, when we uh, uh, lay it up against what scripture has to say, we see that it's diametrically opposed to how scripture defines success and flourishing and prosperity. Mm -hmm. Scripture tells us when we take on the mindset of Christ that we put the interest and needs of others before ourselves. Jeremiah tells us that when we seek the peace and the prosperity of our communities, that's where our flourishing is found. It's not when we just prioritize what's good for me and my biological family, but scripture actually tells us that there's something more robust out there for us. And it gives us a different picture of what flourishing should mean for the people of God. Talking to Dominic Gilliard, you're listening to Uncommentary. We're talking about what it means to have privilege, and we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, Technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, There's costs associated with editing. 
There's costs associated with scheduling, and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month. And you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give 250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly and these are uh, auto drafts. So you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone and really uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. So uh, one of the things that really aggravates me about the privileged conversation is not that some people can have this conversation like purely sociologically. Um, I understand a whole conversation could be had that doesn't reference the scripture at all. But what you've done is you've really taken the scripture and examined what privilege looks like through the lens of the text. And what does irritate me is not that you've done that, but that people act like it can't be done. Like these are two <laughs> separate conversations. Like you got a Bible yeah. conversation over here and you got a racial privilege or privilege conversation over here and never the twain shall meet. So, um, one of the things I really appreciate about your book is you use so many scriptural vignettes. All of your chapters actually are scriptural examples of what it means to have privilege in some way or another. So let's just, let's just talk about maybe two or three of these, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, leveraging privilege to resist systemic sin. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So this whole passage is about privilege. Um, from Exodus 1, 6 through two ten, we see that Pharaoh has built a, economically flourishing empire, but it is rooted in the dehumanization and subjugation of his Hebrew neighbors. Um, everything that Egypt has is rooted in the enslavement of their Hebrew neighbors, which simultaneously uh, defies the truth that they are equitably made in the image mm -hmm. of God. And scripture tells us that Pharaoh's fear is ultimately what's driving his his discriminatory actions and his um, his violence uh, to his neighbors. And so the more fearful he becomes, the more intense his oppression is. And he gets so fearful to the point that not only uh, does he, you know, commission them to make, you know, bricks from straws, but it crescendos when he ultimately says that all Hebrew boys must be put to death just because of their ethnic identity. Mm -hmm. um, and, so in this, we see that 
scripture doesn't tell us about any Egyptians who raise their moral voice and their ethical voice and say, hey, Pharaoh, this isn't right. right. This isn't how we're supposed to live. <laughs> um, but the system's working for them. Mm-hmm. So they think, and so they acquiesce to things that you have to believe that they knew were wrong. Mm. Like you, you have to believe that they knew that it was not right to enslave another group of people. And it definitely wasn't right to say that all boys must be put to death just because of their ethnic identity. But you don't see anybody raise their ethical or moral voice. And so in that, we start to see how when elected officials are more concerned about fear than they are ethics and they don't have moral people within their inner circle who will help hold them accountable or call them out when they go astray then it really seduces an entire nation into complicity with sin and injustice and that's what we start to see here um but what's so beautiful about this passage is a couple things first um Pharaoh's only concerned about the men, um, hence why he says all Hebrew boys mm-hmm. must be put to death, because he thinks that those boys will ultimately grow into men and have power, the power to topple mm-hmm. his empire. But we see how the subversive spirit of God is at work, um, really even challenging those incorrect presuppositions. And the spirit moves and flows through the the actions of faithful, courageous women, uh, starting with Hebrew midwives who have no power or status within society, mm-hmm. who, de- who refuse a direct order from the most powerful man in the land, flowing into uh, Moses's mom, who's put into this impossible situation where she either must break the law and ultimately harbor a fugitive or put her son to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and then goes into his sister, who, as the story hangs into the balance, uses her wit to try to uh, help Pharaoh's right. daughter see the liberative possibility that is before her, and then ultimately into Pharaoh's own daughter. And this is where I believe, you know, we have settled all too often for what I used to say were inc- incorrect interpretations, mm-hmm. but now I say are incomplete interpretations mm-hmm. of scripture. Um, because we have made this passage entirely too small. And we've made the gospel too small in how we preach and teach this passage. Mm. This passage is a radical story about the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It lets us know that the gospel has power to break generational cycles of bigotry. Like, you have to think about this. Pharaoh is the one who is coming up with all of these discriminatory laws and all of this legislation that's rooted in murder and sin and oppression. So you have to know over the dinner table, he was espousing all types of toxicity to his daughter. Mm -hmm. Like, she was literally being indoctrinated to carry on this family legacy of hatred Mm -hmm. and when she goes to the riverbanks and we see the spirit of god we see uh, moses's mom and trust him to the spirit of god and the spirit of god guides the the basket to where you and i would think is the worst place he could possibly go (laughs) over (laughs) over to the clansman's daughter yeah (laughs) i mean exactly And we see the the power of God at work and how it's troubling the waters of belonging when Pharaoh's daughter goes to the basket and she opens it up 
and she says the first mm-hmm. thing she says is this mm-hmm. is one of those hebrew children yep. so she's saying in her mind i know what i'm supposed to do right. because i've been programmed to see these hebrews in this way but then when she looks into his eyes she doesn't see an expendable person she doesn't see somebody whose life doesn't matter she doesn't see somebody whose only value is in uh their ability to be exploited that is good, she brother. sees somebody else whose humanity is connected to her own. that is so good and I think when we don't preach and teach this passage in that way, we 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 buy into a logic that says the gospel doesn't still have that power today. Mm. So let's um, uh, let's jump over in the New Testament and talk about yeah. Paul and Silas levering, leveraging oh, yeah. privilege to create systemic change. Yeah. Yeah. Another beautiful passage about, you know, the disciples of Jesus Christ are on their way somewhere and they encounter this woman who is possessed by a demon who's being exploited by powerful men. Um, and instead of continuing to go on their way or passing by on the other side of the roadside, they inconvenience what they have planned to intervene. And they act on this woman's behalf and liberate the demon from her. And when it does so, the text says that the men's hope for making money was gone. Mm. And it says that it threw the city into an uproar. And so that's important because it helps us see it wasn't just about these two men Mm -hmm. who were oppressing her, but this was a broader system of exploitation uh, that was connected throughout the city and was connected to the city's economic flourishing. Um, So these men ultimately wanted to make Paul and Silas pay a price for what they've done. And they take them to the city square, which doubles the the marketplace and the judiciary are in the same place. Again, scripture's trying to give us some clues here (laughs) (laughs) Um, that in Rome, uh, the judiciary is more concerned with profiteering than it is with justice. Mm. And we should see the close connection to our, our, judicial system in the U.S., where Brian Stevenson tells us that we have a criminal justice system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent, because it's wealth, not guilt, that informs culpability within our present system. Mm. So when they go, they go and they press charges against Paul and Silas. And this is another connection I want people to see. When they go, they don't just uh, accuse them of liberating the demon from this woman. They also and that engage in what we call dog whistle politics. Mm. So they know that Rome is a place where that is rife with anti-Semitism. And so the first thing that they do is to say that these men are Jews who are promoting things that are not, you know, received Mm -hmm. within Rome. And so they start to cast them as the other. Um, And in casting them as the other, they know exactly what they're doing. And scripture tells them as soon as they did it, that the crowd starts to participate in their persecution. And Paul and Silas are stripped, beaten with rods, and ultimately denied access to a trial before being falsely incarcerated. Wow. Um, And so that would never happen in America, dude. And essentially what it's saying is Paul and Silas endure what would be akin to police brutality Mm. today and akin to them being held in, uh, taken in front of a public crowd and the crowd starts to jeer and participate in their persecution. Mm. Like that's what's going on here. And so ultimately, um, you know, they're incarcerated and when they're incarcerated, um, 
you know, they're they're singing songs of praise. Mm-hmm. They're singing resistance songs like in the civil rights movement. They're still saying, hey, these chains don't have the power to silence us. We still know who and whose we are. Mm-hmm. And we're going to bear witness to that even in in this dark prison isolated from everybody. And uh, but what ultimately happens in really what I want to get to within this story is that the magistrates ultimately find out that Paul and Silas were misidentified as Jews. And the text says, as soon as they found out that they were Roman citizens, they became concerned. Now, the fact that the judiciary only cared about their oppression and their mistreatment and their denial of justice to Paul and Silas when they realized that they were Roman citizens, that is what privilege is. Uh. Privilege is only caring about how someone is treated and how someone is dignified when you realize they have a certain status. Mm. Because if they were Jews, they would have paid it no concern. They would have been completely unconcerned, even though they knew all of the oppression and injustice and persecution that these two men had endured. Mm. They wouldn't have had any kind of ethical or moral concern. But as soon as they realized that they were like them, that they held the same status in society uh, as they did, then they were concerned. And so the text says that they sent the jailer down and told them to be to release them. And this is where we see Paul prophetically bear witness to who and whose he is, uh, demonstrating his his faith in Jesus Christ. He says, no, they publicly beat us, they publicly persecuted us, and now they want to release us at the crack of dawn where there's no accountability (laughs) and no one around to see what they've done. No, let them come down themselves and release us. And what Paul is really doing is he knew the whole time, and you can tell by how he response to the jailer Mm -hmm. he knew the whole time that all he had to say throughout their entire persecution and brutalization is actually we're not jews we're roman citizens and their treatment would have been categorically different Mm -hmm. but he also knew that to do that would have been for him to exploit his privilege for selfish gain and it would have actually been exploiting his privilege so that he didn't share in the sufferings of christ like what we're told to do in romans 8 so he prophetically stands in solidarity with his uh, immigrant neighbors who stand no chance of receiving justice within Rome's judiciary. Mm. And in doing so, he prophetically bears witness to who and whose he is, and he shines a light on the Roman justice system that's only just for Romans and not just for non-Romans. And he says that as somebody who he didn't create the system, as somebody who wasn't a lawyer within the mm-hmm. system or a magistrate within the system, he could have just turned a blind eye to that and say, hey, the system's working for me and Paul, me and Silas. <laughs> so, hey, let's just cash in our chips and get out of this. But he knew that to do that would not have been faithful to the gospel of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ that the gospel calls us to suffer with our neighbors when we see uh, systemic sin infringing upon shalom that God created all of us to enjoy and to enjoy together. So it becomes this prophetic witness of what Christians are actually supposed to do when we see systemic sin and how we're supposed to respond to it and how we strategically leverage the privileges that we have to create a more just and equitable world. This is such good stuff. Your book is uh, Subversive Witness. Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege, Dominique Dubois-Gilliard, G-I-L-L-I-A-R-D, right? Yeah, I go with the U.S. Uh, pronunciation of Dubois uh, uh, because I'm, 
but 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 that's the right name because all three of my names are French, and so that would have been the right uh, global pronunciation. But I'm named after W. E. B. Du Bois. Okay, I get that and wrong. So every time. I take. I, I just take it after after him. <laughs> I hear you. Now you're on Twitter, not enough, but you are on there. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? <laughs> yeah, so I'm on Twitter. I'm on IG. I'm on Facebook, and I'll give you all of those right now. Okay. So on Twitter, I am Dominique. No, I'm sorry. On Twitter, I'm DD Gilliard. So Dominique Du Bois, DD Gilliard. Okay. On Instagram, I'm Dominique D Gilliard. And on Facebook, you can find my author page at Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. All right. And Zonda Venetia Publisher. And yep. this book is out, right? Yep. This book is out and it is doing really well. Excellent. And I'm really be. excited. Yeah. And there is also a small group video based curriculum that goes with the book so people can uh, process the content in community. And so I'll send you a link to that for the show notes. Okay. Fantastic. That's awesome, man. Uh, I really appreciate you hanging out today and, and I wish you all God's great blessings. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.